Hi, this is John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. What we are doing over this series is exploring the personality of Jesus from my new book, Beautiful Outlaw. There is absolutely no one and nothing that is more captivating than Jesus when you can see him as he really is. And to know Jesus as he really is, is to fall in love with him. And so what we're doing in this series, I am reading some excerpts from a new book called Beautiful Outlaw, discovering the playful, extravagant, disruptive personality of Jesus, which comes out this October. And so let's explore Jesus together. Maybe if we allow Jesus the playfulness we see in his creation, we can then see him at play in the Gospels. Perhaps it will help us unlock some of these otherwise perplexing stories. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake, throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. From Matthew chapter 17. What? This is a mighty strange little story. Why in the world does Jesus send Peter off on a quest right out of an Irish fairy tale? The Apostle and the Salmon of Gold. We're talking about a few dollars here. What is with the fishing trip? If you remove the actual personality of Jesus from the scene and insert that religious, ethereal, ghost-like personality gazing off into realms unknown, the image of Christ conjured up by so many paintings and Sunday school art, you wind up with some pretty bizarre interpretations. That the open mouth of the fish, as one commentator has it, represents the open hearts of people who will receive the gospel as Peter becomes after the resurrection, a fisher of men. An exercise of hermeneutical contortion worthy of Cirque du Soleil. Contorted interpretations based upon religiously bizarre images only serve to push Christ further off into the ethosphere. And by their fruits you shall know them, warned Jesus in Matthew seven sixteen. But with his personality front and center, these stories take on a richness we have missed. Peter has taken an enormous risk, hitching his wagon to Jesus. The little band of minstrels have passed the raised eyebrow stage and are about to enter the period of open opposition to Christ, the pitchforks and torches stage. Peter is confronted by the elders of his own village, with a troubling question. He comes into the house, visibly shaken, and sees his master standing at the counter, chopping vegetables. 
there is a moment of silence. While the pang of doubt shoots through his mind, perhaps the master is not as righteous as we thought. He does not seem to keep the law. Jesus does not look up. He simply says, What do you think, Simon? Peter, I'll tell you what I need you to do. He sends the fisherman fishing. He gives him time to sort things out. He shows him that there are higher laws to live by. Jesus has a sense of humor. Without a deep confidence in that, the story is simply bizarre. But with that understanding, it is a beautiful and very human and also immensely funny story, the fruit of which is only to make us love him more, and you shall know them by their fruit. Here's another wonderful moment when Jesus' tone of voice means everything. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. From John chapter 1. These guys are meeting Jesus for the first time. Keep in mind now that Jesus knows what is about to unfold, all that these lads will be swept up into, feeding the 5,000, commanding the storm to cease, raising Lazarus from the dead. Nathaniel says, how in the world do you even know me? We never met each other before. Jesus says casually, oh, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip came to get you. Nathaniel hits his knees. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus' response is priceless. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? There has to be a couple of raised eyebrows and a suppressed smile on his face. Wow, you're easily impressed. And then, knowing what Nathaniel is going to behold, he has to chuckle just a bit when he says, Oh, you'll see greater things than that. I'm remembering a story from last summer. My sons and I were on the first leg of a five-day backpacking trip into a wilderness area we'd never visited before. We've been on the trail only 45 minutes or so, but already I'm bringing up the rear. I am the old goat now. I'm looking around, taking in the sights, when I notice moose sign on the trail. Droppings, tracks, not fresh, but still, it didn't even cross my mind that we might be in moose country. I love moose. Seeing one is a celebration for me. With a hesitant hopefulness, I prayed, Wow, Jesus, it would be awesome if we could see a moose sometime during this trip. I'm thinking several days from now, way into the backcountry, and maybe only then from a mile away. Jesus' immediate reply was deadpan. You will. Count 1001, 
1,002, 1,000, bam. There in front of us, 60 yards away, is a moose grazing in the meadow. His comic timing could not have been more exquisite. Recalling Jesus' playfulness with the guys when he did a take-two of the miraculous catch, have another look at the classic Emmaus Road story. Now that same day, Resurrection Sunday, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. From Luke chapter 24. Pause. You have got to be kidding. Here are two of Jesus' disciples, as grief-stricken as human hearts can be. They think he's dead. They think it's all over. If any moment cried out for good news from Jesus, it was this one. Yet again, how casually he enters the scene, this time as a traveler with a flight to catch. He just sort of huffs up alongside, again hiding himself as he later does on the beach, to let this play out. He asks what they're so upset about. Can you believe it? Cleopas can't. How is it possible that this stranger could have missed the things rocking Jerusalem these past few days. What things? Jesus inquires. Um, if anyone knows what things, it is Jesus. These are his things, for heaven's sake. His most important things ever. He feigns ignorance? The story continues. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Remember now, what is Jesus' overall mood this particular Sunday morning? Just a few hours ago, he walked out of the grave with the keys to hell swinging on his belt and the redemption of mankind in his pocket. Would it be safe to say he is cheerful? Maybe even excited? Jubilant? Christ is about as happy as anyone has ever been in the history of the world. But so far, he has only appeared to Mary Magdalene. Isn't the moment crying out for him to reveal himself to these shell-shocked followers? Look, it's me. I'm alive. Everything's going to be okay. Rejoice. Tell the world. He doesn't. He carries on with the disguise, apparently for some time, holding forth on highlights from the Old Testament as the three tramp along. And then comes this unbelievable moment. As they approached the village to which they were going, 
Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. He acted as if he were going farther? Well, nice talking to you chaps. So sorry for your loss. Hope things turn out. But I've got to get going. What in the world? Christ takes up the role of a thespian, pretending to have to move on so that they must beg him to stay? Oh, all right, if you insist. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Poof. See ya. What do you make of this story? Jesus' behavior is either A, bizarre, B, meant to drive home some obscure spiritual lesson, which, taking in the timing, this is the first thing he does after resurrecting, and his play acting is even more bizarre, or C, it's playful. Given that this is the God of a playful creation, on his resurrection morn, he who has been so playful with his followers in their years together, whom we see playing the inside joke on his closest friends a week from now, I'm putting my money on playful. How have we missed this? Ask yourself. Is this the Jesus of my friends? My church? Is this the Jesus we pray to? Is this what I look to experience from Jesus? Fierce intention. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Matthew chapter 16. Hold on now. This doesn't sound very playful. What are we to make of the sudden mood changes that erupt from Jesus like thunder from a clear sky? If your children acted this way, you'd send them to their rooms. Whatever we have here, we certainly don't have a man of mild emotion or two-dimensional passivity. For some reason, we keep forgetting that Jesus is operating in enemy territory. We project into the gospel stories a pastoral backdrop, the quaint charm of a Middle Eastern travel brochure, picturesque villages, bustling markets, smiling children, and Jesus wandering through it all like a son come home from college. We forget the context of his life and mission. His story begins with genocide, the massacre of the innocents, Herod's attempt to murder Jesus by ordering the systematic execution of all young boys around Bethlehem. I've never seen this included in any crush scene, ever. Who could bear it? You must picture ethnic cleansing as the 20th century saw in Bosnia, Rwanda, Burma, atrocity, the ground soaked with the blood of children who five minutes earlier were laughing and playing. God the Father 
knowing this is about to strike, sends an angel to warn Joseph. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. Matthew chapter 2. The little family flees the country under cover of darkness like fugitives. The father's strategy is intriguing. Surely God could have simply taken Herod out or sent angels to surround the holy family. Why must they run for their lives? It ought to make you think twice about how God goes about his plans in this world. But let us continue with the facts. An angel in the night, a flight in the dark, hiding south of the border like outlaws. And thus begins a dangerous game of cat and mouse. Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. John 7, 1. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Matthew 12, 14 and 15. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. John 10, 39 and 40. Surely you see that Jesus was a hunted man. We cannot understand his actions nor taste the richness of his personality until we set them within their context. The man is operating deep behind enemy lines. This colors his extraordinary movements across the pages of the Gospels, and it helps to strip away that benevolent religious fog that continues to creep into our reading. It also gives depth and poignancy to moments of self-disclosure, such as the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, because he was hunted. But is it not more true to say he is the hunter? As Jesus steps out from behind those thirty years of almost total obscurity into the task set before him, both men and demons begin to feel his fierce intention. He went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and there on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon— an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. From Luke chapter 4. You cannot appreciate the difficulty of this until you've tried it yourself. Most of us wouldn't walk into a dark alley if we could avoid it. Early in his novel, Paralandra, C.S. Lewis tells the story of a man called to help a friend on a very important task, one that is opposed by dark powers. 
As he leaves the train station and begins his trek to his friend's cottage in a fading twilight, he encounters that opposition. Go back, go back, it whispered to me. Send him a wire. Tell him you were ill. Say you'll come some other time, anything. The strength of the feeling astonished me. I stood still for a few moments, telling myself not to be a fool, and when I finally resumed my walk, I was wondering whether this might be the beginning of a nervous breakdown. He passes an abandoned factory that looks unbelievably ominous. Fear slithers in. He is shot through with doubts about his friend, and then doubts about his view of the universe, and then more thoughts about having a nervous breakdown, which all seem confirmed by the swirling chaos in his mind and emotions. He wonders if he might be going mad. I was past the dead factory now, down in the fog where it was very cold, and then came a moment, the first one, of absolute terror, and I had to bite my lips to keep myself from screaming. It was only a cat that had run across the road, but I found myself completely unnerved. Soon, you really will be screaming, said my inner tormentor, running round and round, screaming, and you won't be able to stop it. At all events, I can't really describe how I reached the front door of the cottage. Somehow or other, despite the loathing and dismay that pulled me back and a sort of invisible wall of resistance that met me in the face, fighting for each step and almost shrieking as a harmless spray of the hedge touched my face, I managed to get through the gate and up the little path. And there I was, drumming on the door and ringing the handle and shouting to him to let me in as if my life depended on it. An account so reliably written it had to have been drawn from personal experience. Many of you have endured something similar, if only in nightmares. And this poor fellow was merely trying to make it from the station to the cottage. Jesus walks right up to people foaming at the mouth in full-blown demonic possession and confronts the ancient spirits directly. Very intentional. Quite fierce. And then comes the thunderstorm at the temple. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. From John chapter 2. In two verses, he empties the temple, a report that reads like the crack of a bullwhip. But take the action slowly. First, Jesus observes the shenanigans, and it makes him furious. And then he takes the time to make a weapon. Where did he get these cords? That required some looking around. Having found them, he had the patience and forethought to weave them together effectively to make a usable whip. He knows what it takes to move large, sedentary cattle and self-righteous profiteers. There's time enough here to cool off if this is merely an outburst of anger, but no, this is a planned and sustained aggression, particularly unsettling for pacifists. 
Following the flow of the text, it says he then used that whip to drive all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. The livestock would have been kept in some sort of corral. They would have been standing for hours, languid, sleepy. An angry man flying upon them with a whip would ignite panic, mass panic. Animals feed upon one another's fear in seconds. Picture cattle and sheep running for their lives, crashing down the corrals, their hooves sliding frantically on the tiles, making them even more desperate. We have a stampede here. It then says he poured out the coins of the money changers and sent their tables tumbling. The money changers think men who make their living through extortion are reported to have been sitting at those tables. Now, how easy is it to move carefully and quickly from a sitting position while removing your legs from the table that is being overturned in front of you? Meanwhile, the coins. Jesus doesn't permit them to gather their money and move off in an orderly fashion. He dumps the coins, scatters them. This is explosive. You've been listening to an excerpt from my new book, Beautiful Outlaw, which comes out on October 12th. And we are so excited to tell people about this Jesus that we've got special offers for you. If you order a copy before October 12th or on October 12th, we want to send you a free second copy that you can give away to a friend because we want to share this with the world. And we've got all kinds of other things, a beautiful book trailer that you can email around to your friends or post on your Facebook site and some free videos and actually some live events coming up. For more information, come to beautifuloutlaw.net.